but I had to learn all those nuances through years of failing oftentimes, mm-hmm. right? And being under the wrong assumption, mm-hmm. which oftentimes my biggest failure, I think, was believing that facts mattered. <laughs> facts mattered, especially around liability. And that was something that I had to kind of reconsider. But I had to learn it from defense attorneys oftentimes. Welcome to The Defense Never Rests with Morgan and Akins, your monthly dose of uncommon sense about all things legal and some that are not. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this episode of The Defense Never Rests. I'm your host, Megan Henry, and today I'm joined by Mike Benson, who is a senior claims adjuster at Great West Casualty. And Mike's really coming on to talk about claims. I mean, that's what this podcast is really all about. Um, And he's coming on to share like his pressure points with on, on his end with claims and what kind of prevents him from getting cases resolved. And also in his experience, what's led to, you know, nuclear type verdicts and, you know, things that counsel can do to, you know, help him and help, help insurance and, you know, get cases resolved and done for good numbers. So with that, let's bring him in. Good afternoon, Mike. How are you? Welcome to the Defense Never Rests. Hey, Megan. It's great to be here. I'm, I'm so happy to have you on. And I, I have to let our, our listeners know, you know, right now that, you know, you're sitting in, in Texas, I'm in South Jersey when, with the snowstorm that's we're supposed to get, I don't know, they, I think the, they're saying like 12 to like 20 inches or something. So um, you won't be digging out a snow tomorrow and, you know, we will. So I know I call my mother all the time and I ask her, what are you going to do? She's got a plan. What's your plan, Megan? I, I, well, you know, I'm actually a little excited about it because typically these snowstorms happen in the middle of the week and I live on my, my house is on top of a hill. So I have every neighborhood kid who likes to sled down my front yard. <laughs> and as a, again, as a defense attorney, that does make me a little nervous, but I'm usually juggling work while all the kids are just outside pretty much running like wild animals. So at least tomorrow I can, you know, supervise and make sure no one, you know, hurts themselves and you know, actually maybe enjoy it too. Usually it's like, I'm just looking out my window, making sure no one like runs into the street and gets run over or something. So, <laughs> so it'll be Hopefully a good no, old fashioned snow day. No premises liability exposure. <laughs> yeah. Let's knock on wood. Let's hope that I'll be out there to manage it, I guess, tomorrow. And I, I won't put fate in my hands. <laughs> this, this nine and seven year olds aren't the most, uh, responsible when it comes to avoiding risk. <laughs> yeah, right. They haven't learned about that yet. <laughs> no. Well, you know, I'm so happy to have you have you on. Uh, we had talked a few, I don't know, a few weeks ago about this podcast. So, you know, and you and I just talked briefly before we start recording. And I think we have enough content here that we might we might need to do two episodes. So let's let's see how we let's see how we do. Um, OK, but before we dig into the meat um, I want to talk about you. I always want to talk about my guests and get to know them and learn about their journey and ha- how they ended up where they are today. Cause everyone is so different. Um, yeah. and how, how they, some of the attorneys are different, how they end up to be in, you know, practicing and everyone in claims just arrives in a different way. So, you know, tell me how, you know, you've been working in claims for uh, like a long time. It'll be 20 years in September. Yeah. You don't look old enough to be doing this for 20 years. Well, you know, I, I, I try to put a focus on physical fitness and my mental health. If I can. It's working. So, you know, how, how did you end up, you know, in this career of claims? Like, what, were there people in your family who worked in insurance or did you just kind of fall into it? So my dad had a law degree. Okay. Uh, 
is licensed to practice in New York. Um, so I did have some of that exposure growing up, even though I never really meant to end up in claims. Just kind of. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, how did it happen? So you went, you went to college and it, was it like, you know, you kind of fell into your first job happened to be for an insurance company or, um, did you yeah, I, I got it. I got, no, he did not actually. I, I got, uh, he told me, don't be a lawyer. <laughs> uh, but uh, no offense, Megan. <laughs> it's all right. It's a typical lawyer response. We all tell other people not to be lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. Uh, well, I got a degree in liberal arts and Spanish. Uh, mm-hmm. They have much of an idea of what I wanted to do. Uh, moved back to New York uh, after college. And I had a short stint in advertising. Okay. And, well, I had a couple car accidents that I got into, <laughs> did a couple, you know, deals, you know, because in New York, sometimes that's what happens. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know what, I, I could see myself doing this. So I went to a job fair and um, I met with some people from a personal auto carrier, progressive insurance, and they hired me mostly because of my language skills, I think. Yeah. Spanish. And I started working claims. You know, that's interesting though, too, because coming from a, it's just the first time I've heard of coming from perspective, like, you know, I, I was a claimant, you know, and I, and then went into claims. So did that kind of like change your perspective or help your perspective being like, you know, I've been on the other side of the, the claim before. And now as being once a claimant, now I, I have a better appreciation of what to, you know, what the claimant might expect from me and, you know, what kind of service I can provide. Well, there, there was that. Absolutely. And I also saw a business need. Okay. I said, you know, this is something that people need. They need somebody to handle their problem, which in this moment is I don't have a car or I'm in or both. And what do I do? Right. And when I saw that opportunity, I said, you know, I could, I could do this mm-hmm. and enjoy it. Um, and for the most part I have, but the solving people's problems, you know, as long as I feel like I can help solve a problem, then I feel like I'm getting a lot out of my work. Yeah. And I, I think that's something that people may miss a lot in, in this industry is that you are in the problem solving business. I mean, as an attorney, I'm definitely in the problem solving business, but you know, when, when you're in claims, I mean, you, you people are coming to you with like, legit problems like they they have a claim against them or they or they have their own claim and they need help and you're Mm -hmm. there to help i am and i take it very seriously at first you know when i was younger i didn't see how serious of a problem it could be Mm -hmm. getting sued right now as someone who is a seasoned veteran of the industry and with nuclear verdicts happening all over the country i can see how it could be big problem to solve. And, yeah. and there's a lot of interesting things involved in that. <laughs> there sure are. <laughs> so, but you, so you were at pers- uh, Progressive for some time, uh, mm-hmm. but now, now you're at Great West Casualty. So how, how, you know, at, what brought you to, to decide to leave Progressive and then what brought you to Great West? Well, uh, Progressive happens to be a great place to learn. Mm-hmm. Um, they can bring you from being someone who knows nothing about claims and they can make you into a superstar. You know, their training is fantastic. The experience you get is great. 
Uh, but there's, you know, a definite ceiling oftentimes, mm-hmm. right? Especially if you want to get into handling larger claims with larger exposure, sure. right? which is where I also, well, excuse me, always saw myself going because that's where it gets really interesting, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. sure. <laughs> so, you know, a progressive, you know, I learned about property damage was the first thing that they taught us. They taught us casualty. They taught us property damage. And um, in the beginning, one of the things I struggled so much with was all the conflict, right? Mm-hmm. Not only is it super fast paced, but there's a lot of conflict all the time. And that was something that was hard to deal with. So I got yeah. into damage because property damage was black and white, right? Mm-hmm. And I they say, well, you know, this doesn't make sense or that doesn't make sense. And at the end of the day, if you didn't pay for it, you wouldn't have to worry about a nuclear birth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, and now it's a little bit different. So it's a but, lot different. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, give me a little background. At, you know, now you're a senior litigator adjuster at Great West. And so uh-huh. what kind of cases do you see there? Or what kind of claims, I, see, I should say? I see trucking accidents, mm-hmm. right? Oftentimes with serious injuries or the allegation of a serious injury, right? Where liability is. I would say often favorable, but because of kind of extraneous stuff that can divert the attention of a jury, the claim becomes dangerous, right? Yeah. Understanding those nuances as someone who's been in the industry 20 years where I get to add value. Yeah. Yeah. So, but I had to learn all those nuances through years of failing oftentimes, Mm -hmm. right? And being under the wrong assumption, Mm -hmm. which times my biggest failure, I think, was believing that facts mattered. <laughs> facts mattered, especially around liability. Mm-hmm. Right. And that was something that I had to kind of reconsider. But I had to learn it from defense attorneys oftentimes. Yeah. Now, did you have like an eye opening experience with that? That like, you, you know, one of your cases that you, you were focused on facts, say, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. It, it went did it, you have an instance that you had the case, you're like, okay, but the facts, the facts, the facts. And then it just went sour on you or, or took a, took a turn that you weren't expecting. Well, the case that I'm thinking of that I, I know I'll remember forever. It was the liability was clear because our insured had backed into the plaintiff, right? There was no question of that. Mm-hmm. So liability was clear, but it was all of the, extraneous information that could be brought in that I thought was crucial to understanding Mm -hmm. value of the claim. But one of the things I learned, first of all, was that plaintiff lawyers look at the amount of insurance available and oftentimes their valuation backs into the tower of insurance. Yeah. Right. So that was one of the things that I learned the hard way. But in this specific case, I'm thinking about uh, the plaintiff had had a serious accident right? With another personal auto where the personal auto was at, was not at fault. He was at fault. And then he had an accident as soon as his vehicle got out of the shop. <laughs> Our accident was a very small accident, a minute accident. And because I had done so much property damage, I was very attuned to, you know, this is a low impact case, right? And again, talking about assumptions, my assumption was that impact severity mattered, right? Yeah. In the wrong venue, impact severity is not important. And that's another thing that we learn as adjusters the hard way, right? So I went back to impact severity. I kept going back to what about the prior loss? 
And then it turned out that the same complaints that he was making that led to the surgery that he got, he had made in the last 10 years. And we got that in discovery. So we had the smoking gun to say mm-hmm. that it was generative in nature. But his surgeon testified that he was asymptomatic before the surgery. And so defense counsel was telling me, this is a dangerous case. Mm-hmm. Life care plan. He had a surgery. Liability was reasonably clear. This was before the legislation had changed in Texas. So there was some question as to whether the photos of the plaintiff vehicle was even going to get entered into evidence. Mm -hmm. And so my view of the claim and value was very different than defense counsel's view of the claim and value. And and we got two weeks out from trial. We ended up settling for north of half a million. And I was in shock. Okay. (laughs) In shock. Now, but that sounds like it was a scenario, though, that your your counsel was advising you of the dangers. Yeah. And were were you not like believing your, or were you like, no, I see it differently? Like what was going through your mindset at that point? Oh, what was going through my mind was that a jury couldn't believe this fact pattern. If we get the prior accident entered in, right, and we can get the photos in, and we can get the medical records showing that he had these same complaints that led to the surgery over a decade ago, mm-hmm. on earth could a jury buy this? Yeah. But he was also a military veteran. He was a Marine, which mm-hmm. was, yeah. right? And the venue is a military, mm-hmm. it's a military town. And these are all things that I learned on the fly that I didn't matter, right? Yeah. Yeah. And yes, defense counsel told us from the beginning that this case could be north of half a million, somewhere between yeah. half a million and 1.2 million with the life care plan. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, so, and I mean, I couldn't agree more though about having to know your venue and how important that is. And just that, that key fact about knowing that it was a, this is a military plaintiff and you're in a military venue like that alone I I would like that that's something to talk about like that <laughs> that's going to be significant uh-huh. um so you know I'm I'm glad that at least your your counsel was like I guess not educating you but you know discussing the, those items but that could be problematic for you well yeah I mean and they communicated well throughout mm-hmm process. But as someone who sees things or wants to see things in black and white, right, Mm -hmm. it's hard to accept some of these kind of more gray issues as being so material. Yeah. Yeah. And some of those, I feel like you find out, sometimes you find about the, you know, the hard way, you know, (laughs) like, I mean, and let's face it, like the, all of this is pretty gray. I think like one, the facts can be the facts, but once you get into the very minute details, uh, a lot of the very significant items is that gray matter, you know? Well, it certainly affects value quite a yes. bit. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, you know, I wanted to ducktail off of that though, and talk about communication though, because it sounds like in that um, instance, you had, you know, you had a, a counsel that you trusted and was very good at like seeing the grand picture and communicating it to you. Um, at least that's, that's what I heard when you were, you know, telling me. Well, I I should be, I should be specific. It was the partner that we ended up getting. 
after I was struggling a little bit with the value, right? Okay. With an associate, he was telling me all of these things, but I wasn't buying it. Okay. And then it got moved to a partner and it got set for mediation and we spent some time together face to face. And it was at that point in time that I started to really want to accept the type of things that he was telling me and how important these items are in determining value. Well, and one thing that sticks out to me though, that I see as a positive is that that attorney, even the associate and as well as the partner didn't stand down and they stuck by what they, they believe the case to be worth, even though at the time it seems like that you weren't on board with their numbers yet. And they're like, no, no, the, like, cause I think, I think it's a detriment if ca- counsel's like, oh, okay. Like we'll drop our number. Like they, they kind of try to be a yes, a yes person versus mm-hmm. you know, telling you how, how we evaluate it. So did you appreciate that, that they kind of stuck to their um, position and kind of like in a way kind of ex- like kept explaining to you like, no, this is why we are where we are. Yeah. But it was hard for me to understand at the time because I didn't understand that the judge could arbitrarily, I thought, in my opinion, not let the photos of the plaintiff vehicle be entered into evidence. And I didn't understand motions and limine mm-hmm. and only be decided when it might be too late already. So. Okay. Right. Yeah. And, and that nuance there was a very big development for me in getting it settled because yeah. I didn't understand or know that stuff because of the education gap between adjusters and attorneys. Yeah. So, you know, what advice would you give to, you know, an attorney or even an associate in that type of scenario to, um, you know, I, to kind of stick to their guns, so to speak, um, and not back down when, you know, you, you, you truly see this is where the value is. And, you know, because a lot of times you want to please your client, too. So it's hard. It's a lot about relationship. And that was something that I learned at Progressive as something that was really important. I wasn't really good at it then. But now that I understand the importance of it, because um, I've been in in the industry for 20 years, um, once I start trusting defense counsel as someone that I consider a reputable advisor, then I start getting on board. But I think a lot of times our industry at this level is going to attract type A personalities and we have a tendency to want to compete with one another naturally. And I'm as guilty of that as anybody else. Sure. Right. But once you start building that relationship and you understand that they're, you know, a trusted advisor, and this is the same relationship I'm trying to build with my insured who have large retentions, right? So a lot of customers have large retention. So I want to build that relationship with them, become their trusted advisor. So they know that I'm not just out there spending their money willy nilly, that I really, really believe that this is the best possible outcome. Right. And understanding the relationship piece that helped lead me to the part where I wanted to start accepting the education the defense counsel wanted to give. Yeah. Yeah. And I love, I love that you can't, you got there, you know, well, me too. <laughs> Me, too. Me too. Um, but you know, what are in, in your eyes though, since I mean what are some things that defense counsel can do to build that trust? Because it's not automatic. I mean, I mean, you could have an idea like like say you and I, you know, we can have an idea like, oh yeah, I like her. 
but like, I still need to earn your trust. And I can't, you, I don't earn your trust just by saying, you can trust me, Mike, I got you, you know, like, so what are some things that you value from your counsel that like helps build up your trust and confidence in them? Well, uh, I like doing mediation and during mediation, instead of just trying to work files, I'm actually talking to them. And I say, tell me about yourself, right? <laughs> I want to get to know them. I really do. Because mm-hmm. not only does that help me know what venues they'll play really well in and what plaintiff lawyers they match up well with, mm-hmm. but it also helps me understand them in a better way. So I can feel like I can tell them, you know, I really don't agree with you. Mm-hmm. Right. So that mediation conversation has been critical to me building relationships with defense attorneys and mediators to get better outcomes. So that's one. And lunch. I know it sounds kind of, you know, uh, flippant, but lunch, lunch is big. (laughs) So then you must be struggling a little bit over the last like two years when mediations have like most mediations have been virtual and there haven't been a lot of lunches. (laughs) I know. I know. Believe me. There's one, there was one uh, mediator. We just settled a case yesterday and he's in Austin and they have this thing called the headliners club and politicians from Austin go and they frequent it. <laughs> feel real important while you have lunch. And I think I settled like, I don't know, 11 out of 12 cases at the headliners club, <laughs> but the mediator is so good that he can do it soon too. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I will say I do. I do miss the, I mean, I, I do miss the in-person mediations. Cause I agree. Like I, I like that time that you can really get to sit and know, get to know your adjusters on a more personal level, not just talking about, you know, shop and cases. Like I've learned so much about, you know, my clients and, um, Mm. you know, what, what makes them tick and it makes me be able to serve them better, you know, and figure out what, you know, what they're looking for. Um, just cause I know them as an individual more so than just an adjuster. And, you know, the interesting thing is, is that, I feel like attorneys and adjusters have so much in common. Oh. We really do. And, and, but you have to kind of look for those commonalities. And that's why it's important to spend time talking even when we're all pressed for time and all very busy. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we can't talk about communication without talking about communication though with plaintiff's counsel. And I, mm-hmm. I know from, from talking to you, um, before that's, that can be a real sticking point. Cause sometimes you have plaintiffs and counsel that just don't communicate. Some of the most problematic attorneys in Texas and in Louisiana, their strategy is don't communicate. <laughs> don't communicate at all. Keep them guessing. Right. Mm-hmm. And in, and that really requires more analysis by the adjuster to reach out to defense counsel and say, what do you know about this firm? And what do you know about this particular plaintiff's lawyer there? Right. Yeah. What providers do they send their people to? What's their playbook? Right. 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 Where do you see this going? Right. And then and then, you know, there's that joke about adjusters and attorneys having that proverbial crystal ball where we're supposed to (laughs) future. Right. But if the goal is to have the reserve up in the calendar year, the right reserve, the right amount of money in the calendar year of the accident, then that's really what we're tasked with doing. So oftentimes it involves guessing yeah with those type of attorneys and their approach is keep them guessing for as long as possible and that means dropping a life care plan on them at mediation mm-hmm. right? dropping a surgical recommendation at mediation and all of those things create all kinds of problems for somebody who is trying to 
have the right number going in without the information yeah. you need. <laughs> oh yeah. And I know from, from my position, you know, I, I, nothing frustrates me more than counsel who doesn't respond to me because for not only just not knowing things, but it makes me look bad. Like it, like I, I'll tell my adjuster, like, I swear I like, I'm not just not doing anything on this case. I just have a very non-responsive counsel. And this is outside of motions. Yeah, sure. You can file motions and force a response, but right. you know, simple things when you're just getting evaded and you're, you're not getting anything back from them. I internally struggle with that because I'm like, well, it's making me look to my adjuster. Like I might not be doing anything because they're not doing anything. And I know we all get it, but mm -hmm. you know, I have that sometimes have that internal struggle. I, I have it all the time, but <laughs> what I start doing now is setting up monthly calls with defense counsel where we sit down at a time that's convenient and we talk about every case that they have with me. Right. And yeah. so adding and putting in those monthly updates and you're putting in repeatedly that plaintiff counsel hasn't responded. We might have to file a motion to compel so, so on and so forth. Then at least, you know, you feel like you're covered. Yeah. And those monthly calls really probably help for, you know, your relationship with counsel too. And you get to know them a little bit better. Always because, you know, yeah. you talk about things outside of work for at least the first 10, maybe 15 minutes. We're in yeah. tech. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, when you have the, when you, Actually, I should back up. So it's funny, though, that you mentioned about counsel, you know, avo avoiding talking to you or being, you know, just non-responsive. I recorded a podcast just this week with a plaintiff's counsel who I went to law school with and I'm, I'm friendly with. And he had such an opposite view that, you know, talking about pre-suit cases. And he's like, I, I just want the adjusters to pick up the phone and call me and just talk mm -hmm. to me. And yeah. so I think it's not, I think you know, though, those other counsel can give a bad rap to the others who are like, look, I, I want to get this resolved. If I can resolve this without filing suit, I would love to do that. But I need, I need to talk to them and, you know, have a conversation with this attorney. And, and he also said, I'm also not offended. If you tell me I, I'm not going to settle this. That's he's like, that's okay. You know, but I'd rather have you tell me that. No. And I believe being upfront and communicating aggressively. I may be the exception in that regard, but what I'm talking about is when the direction comes from the owner of the plaintiff firm, <laughs> don't talk to anybody, right? Yeah, right. Right? They can find out in discovery. Yeah. They can find out at mediation. They can find <laughs> out at the pretrial hearing. Yeah. It's like, you know, trying to have something in your back pocket that is going to be a surprise, but in reality, I don't think it always works. I mean, sure, you can dump something on me at the last minute, but it means I'm just going to get more time to get a response if I need one. Mm. And it's going to prevent a case from resolving. Like no good comes to just walking into a mediation with a sudden life care plan. Like that's not going to help move things along. <laughs> I, I still don't understand it. And, and to an earlier point in one of your podcasts is if the goal is to kill the opposing side with kindness, right? Mm -hmm. Then how do you do that under those circumstances? Yeah. It's almost, it's nearly impossible because I don't know what plaintiff's counsel is telling their client yeah. because all I know is what the mediator is telling me plaintiff counsel is telling their client. Yeah. 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 And again, from a, you know, a def 
from a council perspective, like those sorts of things also make me look bad. Like there's nothing I hate more than going to a mediation, you know, talking to my adjuster, we have a game plan. And then you come in you and council hasn't brought their best foot forward. And now you've wasted your adjuster's time. You've wasted money on the mediator and nothing's getting done. Like why, why did we do this? Like why, and why, and then I look bad for recommending that we shouldn't do this. Cause when council comes with, you know, with some surprise, you know, thing, and we can't get it done. So I learned a little bit about this once at a seminar and they called it redefining what a win is. <laughs> so if you walk away with more information about the case that you couldn't get any other way, sure. that's a win. And maybe you didn't settle it. And sure, you didn't settle for your number, but you came away with more information. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good that a win. That's a good positive spin. And I, you like I, it? <laughs> I mean, there are times that I would, I, I definitely agree with that. Like sometimes like mm-hmm. pre-suit mediations, um, you know, and, and you probably know this, if you, you know, we, the trucking claims, I feel like you, I deal with pre-suit mediations more often than not, especially if you're dealing with a, a catastrophic claim, because sometimes Absolutely. you're looking at it like, look, this is going to be extremely costly. Maybe we can do this in pre-suit mediation. And a lot of times pre-suit mediations don't resolve but you get a lot of information that you wouldn't have gotten before a complaint is filed. So, you know, in those instances, I think they're very well worth your time, even if it doesn't resolve. I hear oftentimes though, plaintiff's counsel thinks we're waving the white, the white flag. We can't. <laughs> and I'm like, have to mediate just to find something out, right? We have to figure out our strengths and our weaknesses. Sure. Yeah. And so that's why I like it. And I try not to see it as a waste of time, but part of what I'm doing also is building the relationship if I can't yeah yeah sure so you know and we can't just to pivot a little bit we can't talk about you know trucking claims without talking about nuclear verdicts um and i mean i i I feel like it's they like right now it's all you're hearing that's hand in hand so you know and in your experience you know what do you think is driving these these verdicts well there's a shift going on Mm-hmm. it's beyond comprehension of many of, I would say, our customers, because oftentimes they have, I think, the tendency to do what I had done as a young adjuster, which is fall in love with our defenses. Mm-hmm. And when you fall in love with your defenses and you don't want to settle something and you had a chance to settle it, but instead you want to, you know, as I've heard, ride in on your white horse. <laughs> that sometimes that upsets juries and is hard. Yeah to predict the psychology of a 21st century jury, especially post-COVID. Yeah, sure. That's what, that's really the fear factor for me all the time. And I always tell my customers, please understand this is not the jury that we saw even 10 years ago. No, yeah. But, 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 you know, if you have additional thoughts around that, I'd like to, you know, I'd be interested to hear what you think, but in a nutshell, that's what I think. Yeah. And I, I think there's also a factor of, and this has come up a lot when I've talked to other people about this is, you know, the normalcy of large numbers that a million dollars feels like in, even though it's a lot of money, it seems so normal. So $10 million, like in in a jury's mind, they don't think it's, well, I mean, a million's a million. So what's 10, you know, I I just think these large numbers are, are so such commonplace that, it, the significance of them is kind of lost. 
I would be interested to know how many of the claims that end up in a nuclear verdict, the carrier or the trucking company had a chance to settle. Yeah. I would be interested to know. Because yeah. if they ever give you a chance to settle and you get a nuclear verdict, well, what can you do? Mm-hmm. But if you had a chance, and the interesting thing, again, is if you do your research, you don't need a catastrophic injury anymore to have a nuclear verdict. <laughs> your normal back surgery case now and get mm-hmm. a verdict. And it's understanding, and I still am not there, of what the nuances are specifically in those claims that can make a case go nuclear, right? And part of it's the public counsel and their ability to tell a story. Mm-hmm. But it is having some things about the trucking company or your driver that you just don't want to talk about. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> right? And, and I think all, I mean, all skilled plans attorneys are very good at telling a story. I mean, I think that's one thing that makes, the, the ones that are good, really good. Because if they can captivate a jury with a story and have them just buy into the story, it's going to go so much further than someone without, without that ability. Um, I mean, I've seen it. I've seen it happen, you know, watching very, very skilled and accomplished plaintiff's attorneys. And I'm like, well, they did a really good job in that opening. I, I think they, they captivated everybody. <laughs> what? Well, go ahead. Oh, well, telling a story sometimes is more interesting than facts and numbers. Mm-hmm. Right? And often defending these cases, that's what you're left with talking about, I think. Yeah. I find it to be very interesting, but of course I've been doing this for so long that that's why it's interesting. But really, is it interesting to my wife? Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> no. And I often use it as a barometer too, because I, you know, I'll dive into a case and I think it's worth X. And I'll show like a picture of the plaintiff to, to my husband and he'll be like, I wouldn't give her anything, you know? And so, (laughs) (laughs) so, and it's also sometimes that's a good like check. You know, there are people out there that are like him. There's people out there than the other extreme, but sometimes I get lost and you probably Mm -hmm. get lost in the numbers. We round table things, you know, like we're, this is, you know, we talk about this stuff all the time, but you know, people outside of this industry don't. So they don't have the same barometer like, oh, well, okay, they they fractured or, you know, dislocated their shoulder, had surgery. Okay, that's worth, you know, X, Y, and Z, you know, whereas I I could show him and be like, okay, they fractured their shoulder. Are they, they're fine? Okay. Like what's, what's the problem? (laughs) What does he he do for work? (laughs) He's in finance. So So he's okay with numbers. (laughs) (laughs) Um. But back to the nuclear verdict, you know, what do you think we could do differently on the defense side to, you know, kind of try to go up, go up against this? And, you know, can we do anything you think? Yeah. Settle cases as early as possible. (laughs) That's what I believe. Even if you're, I, I run into all the time, even if you're, if you feel like you're waving the white flag, that's, that's the way to do it. That's my, you know, yeah. I set mediation. Oftentimes if plaintiff counsel is open to it, my strategy is set mediation even before depositions. Mm-hmm. And then defense counsel says, but I haven't even deposed him. I haven't even exposed his pre-existing injuries. I haven't exposed all the surveillance we have on him. And I say, but right now, economically, it makes sense. Yeah. Look at the roles and responsibilities of the adjuster and defense counsel. My job is to kind of jump on the case when it's most economically viable. So then my strategy becomes, how do I get the right mediator to say indirectly 
to the plaintiff, this is your best number today. Because if we all agree that this, the verdict will, you know, there's seven out of 10 times the verdict's going to be this after expenses, experts, and, you know, more attorney fees, you get less. Mm -hmm. And that's my strategy. Yeah. And I don't disagree with that because a lot of times too, like you can really pull out a lot of information without having a deposition. Like what is a deposition going (laughs) to really tell you? Um, We could probably make a bunch of assumptions, educated assumptions about what you're going to learn in a deposition. But one of the main things you try to learn in a deposition is credibility. Well, you could probably find out credibility in a mediation. If you get to meet that plaintiff and you get, you know, an eye on them and get an idea of what that individual is like, you could probably gain that information without going to the deposition and trying to resolve it early. Well, I hope that we start doing mediations in person again. (laughs) (laughs) Because walking in there and also being empathetic and saying, you know, I'm sorry about the accident and I'm here to try to settle this also goes a long way. Yes. Yeah. That, that exact thing has come up quite a bit because I, I, truly and wholeheartedly believe that acknowledging to a plaintiff who's been injured and hurt that you are sorry for what happened to them, even though you might not be responsible, you still, you know, have empathy towards what they're going through. And I do think that gets you, you know, I I, I think that goes a long way, as long as it's genuine, you know, like you can't just fake it, but, um, but I think that's a sentiment that, that is appreciated. I do too. I do too. Yeah. So, you know, and back to like talking about early, early resolution and, you know, costs, um, you know, I'm just willing to bet that something that must drive you crazy when you're outside counsel is if they are just drumming up costs and not looking at the exit strategy. Of course. (laughs) It's the number one thing. And it goes back to the education piece. So I would say half of the time there's something going on with motion practice that I don't know about mm-hmm. that is causing the case to continue to be litigated. I have one where it's really a family law case because the minor is the number one beneficiary of the decedent and the grandparents and the mother had a custody issue, right? So that case continues to be litigated and mm-hmm. that's but outside of my scope. So that yeah. case, I feel like should be continued to be litigated, right? I have another one where um, they're pursuing an insurance company directly as a defendant. I don't feel there's a lot of teeth there, but it's still happening. The motion practice is outside of my scope. But on the other hand, if I deal in volume, and I do, I would hope the defense counsel knows that if they help me exit this one, they'll get another one very soon. Right. And I think that is such a, a, like a misconception. I think, I don't know if misconception is the right word, but I think there's just like this fear among some attorneys being like, well, but I mean, if I sell it, then what am I going to do? Well, like make your client happy and, you know, resolve it. And if they like what you do, you'll get more files. (laughs) I look, you know, one of the beauties of working for Great West is they allow me to spend money pre-litigation, right? Mm-hmm. So I try to engage defense counsel as soon as I get a spoliation. Yeah. Free time. Because you find out a lot. And 
I'd say 20% of the time plaintiff counsel withdraws, which can lead me to my next point, which is about the referral business that I didn't know about either. <laughs> that's a huge part of my evaluation as well. I mean, we even have a lawyer here in the Metroplex that's advertising. Mm-hmm. You get dropped by your lawyer, call me. There you go. Yes. And so <laughs> that's a big, you know, big part of my concern as well is, well, if one plaintiff attorney withdraws, who are they going to refer to? Who's going to pick yeah. up the case, right? How long do I keep the case open? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. And, and also, I mean, a good, a good rule of thumb though is get, is getting the attorney on board when you get that spoliation letter or preservation letter or notice of claim letter, because it helps also control the dialogue. Like if you, even even if you get notice of the accident, if you if you have the ability to get someone boots on the ground at the at the scene to help control the dialogue, that's beautiful. You know, I think it really helps. You know, you set up your defense because I mean, let's face it, there's probably going to be a lawsuit coming down or a potential lawsuit coming down the road. In a trucking accident, I would tend yeah. to yeah. <laughs> yeah yes. In New Jersey now, are a lot of plaintiff attorneys were in, you know, in the tri-state area, are they advertising specifically if you've been hit by a truck? Not that I've seen, um, you know, at least not in that, um, couched in that way, but, um, I mean, they're certainly advertising, but not, not exactly like that. It's very, that's what you're seeing. Yes. Specifically. Have you been hit by a truck? Interesting. Yes. <laughs> like not, I mean, it doesn't happen that often. You know? And then there's all these great graphics of the oh, plane employer standing on top of a truck or with a big sledgehammer in front of a truck or, you know, <laughs> no, we, we've, we've had, we have some that, you know, say things like, Oh, we eat insurance companies for breakfast. Type yeah, yeah. Slogans. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I, I'm all for creative advertising. It, 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 it certainly makes things interesting, doesn't it? Yes, it does. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, uh, on your day-to-day, and mm-hmm. I, you and I had talked about this a, a while back, like what are some of the pressure, you know, pain points that you feel that, you know, keep you up at night or, um, you know, it, induce that anxiety level up. So you feel the need you have to go out for a run or something to, to push it back down. Well, I would say customers with a large attention who don't understand the economics, right. And don't understand that they can really uh, incur quite a bit of expense. Mm-hmm. Don't settle a case. That's a huge piece. And then communicating with them in the fashion that they feel involved, but they don't feel like they have, the decision-making power, that's a huge one for me. Yeah. So, yeah. So not to jump off on that, but, you know, that is something I wanted to talk about because when you have clients who are, you know, self-insured up to X amount or what it, whatever it may be, I mean, at, at some point they, at the beginning, they can kind of drive the course of litigation. Um, mm. And sometimes that can be, you know, troublesome for, for someone like you, especially if you're like, look, I'd rather, I, I, if I know this is going to run into my layer, I want to get this done now. There you go. And so the thing that's hard for, I think their safety to accept is that I've looked at thousands, thousands, thousands of claims. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because I just, I've been at the desk that long. 
So do I have a crystal ball? Not exactly, but I do see the direction these things are going, especially because I've handled multiple venues, mm-hmm. right? This, the urban environment, the more rural environment and everything kind of in between. So helping them kind of buy into, there is a certain amount of probability that this will happen. And if that does happen, then it's going to cost this. Yeah. The hard sell unless you build a relationship, but that takes time. Yes. Often have time. Yeah. You know, and so that's a big pressure point. Yeah. And I mean, and the relationship thing is, is key to that too. So, I mean, if it's a, a client that you've had a long time, you probably can have that conversation with them. Like, look, you know, Joe, I, I, you know, I really think this isn't one we want to play with. You know, this looks like it, we could have a lot of exposure here. You know, I know it's still in your layer, but I said, you know, we have a, we're working together as a team, but if it's someone new that you're not that familiar with, that's a harder conversation to have because they need to trust you. And they feel like when you start resolving cases without looking closely at liability, that you don't know what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. That you made a mistake and it's like, no, no, you don't understand, (laughs) you know, the amount of money that we could be looking at as a verdict in this venue and knowing the plaintiff lawyer, he wouldn't be putting money into this case unless he thought he'd be getting it back in spades. Oh yeah. Right. And so, and that is something I think um, is sometimes missed if you're not like in the thick of it that, you know, counsel, they they invest their, their firm money into cases when they feel Mm -hmm. that they're not going to, to invest the money if they don't feel like they can get it back because that's right. just lost money. Um, and that's definitely something you learn with, I think, experience or a really bad experience that like, you know, opens your eyes to that. Well, I'm thinking about a case that I settled recently or that we settled where um, the decedent went left of center mm-hmm. head on into the tractor trail. We don't know why we can guess. But he was a border patrol agent close to the border between Mexico and Texas. And he had a wife and three kids. My insured was from Canada. The driver was from Asia mm-hmm. and language skills weren't excellent. Right? They were. Mm-hmm. And there was something in the JJ Keller training manual that said he should have reacted differently. We had accident reconstruction that said that he had 2.3 seconds to react. So I kept going back to, but how could you make a determination as to how you should react in that short span of time? And we ended up coming to the conclusion it didn't really matter to the story that the plaintiff lawyer was going to tell, right? And telling that to my customer who had a retention that this was a nuclear verdict, right? Right here. Yeah, waiting to happen. Waiting to happen. So we have a chance to settle it now. And the number was pretty absurd to him this it was you know i want you to fight this to the end i want a defense verdict you know he caused the accident and they're like wow yeah this anymore he's not going to testify we don't have dash cam yeah we have a widow and we have three children yeah and you is terrible and placed to all their strengths and all of our businesses (laughs) I mean, that's where that storytelling comes in too. And understanding. Well, that's exactly what the plaintiff attorney said. I'm yeah. going to tell a story. I'm going to monetize your risk. Mm-hmm. In mediation. 
Yeah. But that's, you know, it's also still such a hard conversation to have with, with a, a client, you know, when they're like, but we didn't do anything wrong, you know, but the optics can, can outshine that. So much so in this case. Yeah. yeah. And there's only so much I can really say. Sure. But, but there were plenty of concerns around those issues that made the case excess of the policy limits. And he had stourized us, which in Texas meant that if I failed to settle the claim within the insured's layer and then there was an excess verdict, the insured could then turn around and sue the insurance company for bad faith. Mm-hmm. So that was a pressure point that was keeping sure. me, <laughs> that was making me go for runs, you know, that was, but I learned a lot. And it was very interesting along the way. <laughs> so what are some things that, you know, that in sitting in your shoes, you wish that either, you know, your outside defense counsel or even, you know, your, your clients knew that, or understood about your day and your job that would make it easier for your cases to either resolve or run smoother? Well, I feel like with technology now, it wouldn't be impossible to create a cross-training, you know, dynamic where, you know, even once a month, they just, they got to look at some claims with an adjuster that didn't have anything to do with their business, but they could see where the claim went well and where it went bad mm-hmm. and why it was that I felt so strongly about what it was that I was going to do on their claim. And if yeah. we get there, I know it's pie in the sky right now, but if there could be some cross training, I always joke with trucking companies. like, I wish that they made the safety manager work claim just for six months, just to yeah. see what it is that we see for a small, short period of time, they would have a different understanding and appreciation about our decision. Yes. Yeah. It's almost like, yeah, you kind of want them to sit in your shoes for, for a day to understand why certain things are important to you. I I've never had a bad verdict, you know, yeah. but of course I've never tried a case that wasn't extremely favorable. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And so what is it? 97% of cases settle. I think so. Something like that. that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, you know, are there, is there anything that like, say we have a lot of attorneys who listen to this podcast. Uh So, you know, is there anything that, or advice that you would give to your outside counsel that, you know, would help them better serve you, particularly when you have these, a lot of self-insured clients, is there anything in particular you could think of that, you know, would, would be better or would be helpful for them to know that it's like, oh, this is unique to this scenario. Cause it is, it is a little more unique than, you know, insurance who are, you know, insured from, you know, dollar one. Okay. So I'm thinking of a case right now. It's problematic plaintiff attorney. It was a year after the accident that I was put on notice that they were, and the injury claim is being presented by the guest passenger in the plaintiff vehicle. They ran a stop sign, mm-hmm. but we, boned them so hard that the person who was in the driver's seat lost consciousness, right? So this is a significant impact. Mm -hmm. We don't have any dash cam video and there are no witnesses and I don't have any surveillance. And really there's no way for me to reconstruct the accident. Mm 
because it's a year after the accident. Now, my defense attorney is very good. And when I say that I hire him, I actually hire him and he's a partner owner at the firm. So one of the things that he does on the retention claims that are huge is he finds out what I've communicated to the insured, make sure that he agrees with those ideas and arguments. And then he piggybacks on what I've told them, but he actually provides the legal fact, mm-hmm. right? And theory behind it. And then he talks about cases that he's tried and how they played out when we ignored the fact that this is a negligence free guest passenger, right? Mm-hmm. And there's enough insurance to cover her. So now she looks somewhere else and this is a joint in several state. So that's why the adjuster's feeling so passionately about yeah. what he has to do, right? And so it's that piece that I get from him specifically that I would say that, you know, I would like all defense attorneys to consider when we run into the situation. Yeah. And also what I'm hearing though, too, is what you appreciate though, is someone who's coming in and truly understanding where you're coming from and then building off of that to, to well, help I, you. I didn't really think about it that way. <laughs> yeah, that's it. He does. He builds on that, right? He does. Yeah. So, you know, and that, that story made me think of this other question that, and I've talked to other, other people about this as well. When you hire counsel, do you look to the particular person, like that partner? Are you hiring that partner or, or do you look to firms? Well, there are certain situations where panel relationships require that I hire firms, but I like the person yeah. because of the relationship piece, right? And sometimes it's a little problematic when I build a relationship and then that attorney moves on to a different firm that's not on the panel. Yeah. 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 But I look at the person, not the firm. Yeah. Well, and I can't even dive into the panel because that's a whole other discussion, but I, I, I'm going to, I might tell you now we might, I might bring you back to talk about panel weight. I just had a podcast the other week that came out about panel counsel. And I think it's just such a topic that a lot of defense attorneys like want to know about, like, how do you get on panel? What works, what works, what doesn't work? It's a mystery (laughs) Uh, to me. It is because what I say, and what I like to tell my superiors is I can produce outstanding results, but you gotta let me pick the ingredients. Mm -hmm. Ingredients are going to be based on relationships. So I know this defense attorney is not scared to call me when they're reading, you know, the disclosures and we have a problem. Instead of sending me a 30-page report and it's buried on page 23, and I look <laughs> it because I'm looking at 100 other, you know, you know, you understand. Yeah. Yeah. And that piece is so huge to me, especially if I'm tasked with making sure I have the right amount of money up. Yes. When the case is ripe for settlement. Yeah. And that is a common theme I, I hear a lot is give me the information up front. If it's really bad, call me. Don't just bury it in a report. Yes. <laughs> call me. Please call me. You know, what is, if you, if you could think back, you know, a piece of advice that you've received from counsel that you still carry with you today. Uh, every claim has a value. Yeah. And, and that one, if there was one sentence that could sum up this entire podcast, <laughs> that may be it. Every claim <laughs> has a value. And I think that's really true. And sometimes that value can be very small, but they just, Uh you know, some, in some cases that value 
you know, could be just the costs, but they, it is true that there is, there is some sort of value to every claim. Yeah. And so one closing question I have for you, that's a little off or different is, you know, at, you know, you've had this long career, um, and, you know, extraordinary one at that. Now, if you could go back and change anything or do it differently, would you do anything differently? And, and what would that be? I really don't think I would at this yeah. point. Only because everything led me to the next step, right? And now that this is where I find myself, you know, I'm happy. Yeah. Dallas is a good place to be. Uh, people are moving here and mm-hmm. landscape is changing quickly. <laughs> and to almost probably more to my liking. And so it's been a wild ride, but, you know, exciting one at that. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I, I love that. I like that. I like the honesty to that, that answer too. So I thank you so much for, for sharing and, you know, sitting with me today and chatting, chatting with me. I I really enjoyed, enjoyed it. And thanks for taking the time out of your day. No problem. And for all our, you know, my listeners and viewers out there, you know, if you like what you hear, please like, and subscribe to the defense never rests on Apple podcasts. And you can also find us on our new YouTube channel, uh, the defense never rests podcast on YouTube and please like, and subscribe.